Good morning and welcome to All About Women. My name is Julia Baird and this, of course, is Annabelle Crabb. Now, Annabelle, of course, needs no introduction. She is ubiquitous and prodigious and deliciously sharp. She has the best puns ever. She was just trying to get me to write my, call my biography of Queen Victoria the Dame of Thrones. (laughs) Um, You will have seen her on Kitchen Cabinet where she needles or she asks penetrating questions of politicians as they flounder in the kitchen um, and has been just so fantastic to see that side of them all. She writes for The Drum. She's the ABC's online (coughs) chief political writer. She is also, set your clocks, clear Monday night, going to be hosting (laughs) Q&A. This Monday night for International Women's Day, so we are extremely excited about that. A lot of things I love about Annabelle Crabb. She has got a great love of cuttlefish and their donut-shaped brains. She, you can pop into her in the ABC foyer and she'll be carrying a basket that has a tea towel over it and she'll go, oh, do you want a melting moment? And she's like, I know, I'm becoming a parody of myself. And she, she made these, like, orange zest melting moments. I keep meaning to get the recipe. They were so good. She's a kind of woman who we all went away on a weekend to, away together one time and had surfing lessons. And at the beginning, the instructor says, right, anyone had any experience with board sports before? And she goes, oh, I get bored by sports. Does that, does that count? <laughs> Her book, The Wife Drought, has been phenomenal in the questions it's raised, um, how it's made us think. I still remember the first time she wrote a column that prompted it, which was about, oh, we keep wondering why there are more female politicians. It's because they don't have wives. There was this crackle, this buzz, and everyone was not just tweeting but talking to each other about it in real life as well. Um, We had a five our drive to this surfing adventure where we spoke about it pretty much non-stop and other things, maybe Victoria, the whole way. We get arrived in the driveway and actually still sat there for another half an hour because we hadn't finished. Um, <laughs> I think we were talking about sex at that point um, with reference to women. Um, and I guess, I mean, there's, there's, it's just so relatable to, for so many women just grappling to do it all. So many women whose teeth grind at the very idea of the words work-life balance. The fact that she says, you know, that we have to act like, you know, we only have a job or we only parent, um, I think was the most resonant. You know, I loved her stories about, like, Chiquita the kangaroo. Any woman who's had a child at a daycare centre or a preschool where they send home a little stuffed animal... And you have to take photos of it with your family, you know, at the beach or surfing or, like, doing stuff, and it has to show you've got this exciting life and you're really interacting and part of your child's education. And it's just... And you're inevitably getting to Sunday night going, oh, no! I, I had Muffles the monkey, and I just lost track of it. It was just really busy, and we got to Sunday night, and I suddenly had to text their dad and go, oh, my gosh, Muffles, it's tomorrow, it's due, and... So he ended up taking a photo of the children doing what they were doing, which was they were sitting on the couch with lice treatment in their hair. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that was it. That was the weekend with uh, muffles. Um, anyway, Annabelle has many things to tell you about the wife drought. I mean, it's the one thing you mentioned to women, the concept of having a wife, and you get that kind of eyes glazed... I can spend the next month on a tropical island with Ryan Gosling kind of thing, or Emma Stone, or whoever floats your boat. And uh, the, the concept that our lives could somehow be different and the things that we take for granted could somehow be different. But I will speak no further and let her explain it for you, for, your, for herself, um, ladies and gentlemen, Annabelle Crabb. Thanks, Jules. Give me a second while I readjust this uh, mic from goddess to normal person. (laughs) Can I just report that five minutes ago, um, Jules and I um, affixed sound packs to each other's bras in a kind of intensely amusing sequence that involved her having to kneel so that I could get both my arms down the back of her shirt. Um, That is pretty much the way I usually like to celebrate International Women's Day, just like... (laughs) Getting busy with Julia Baird's underwear. Anyway, <laughs> these sound packs are hilarious. Like, no dignity is left intact when you're trying to attach one of these things to you. I once was running late for some panel discussion that Bob Carr was on, and I was so late, um, and I had a weeping baby on me as well, and this guy had to attach a sound pack to my underpants. And I don't know who was more horrified, me or Bob Carr, but you know, <laughs> anyway, he changed after that. Anyway. Right. Now, 50 years ago, there was a clause in the Commonwealth Public Service Act which reads as follows, and I'll tell you which clause it was, section 49, part 2, for the statute nerds in the audience. Uh, Every female officer shall be deemed to have retired from the Commonwealth Service upon her marriage. That is correct. Female public servants up until 49 years ago were obliged to resign the moment they got married. A lady whose yearning for a suitable husband had temporarily been sidelined for a career in the public service would thus be required, uh, upon the appearance of the longed-for squire, to gather her things and head home for a new life of domesticity. This law was known as the marriage bar, but it really only applied to women, so it was really the wife bar. Now, the theory behind this clause was that women's main responsibility was to raise families. The Act therefore protected the children of Australia, who would otherwise be in danger of cold dinners, and ensured that married women, who by definition already had someone to earn the money, didn't swipe good jobs either from men, who were supposed to be the providers, or from spinsters, who presumably needed the money for cat food and... insulation against the coruscating despair of their unmarried state. (laughs) Now, while I was having a look at this issue, um, I went back and read the Hansard from 1922, which was when this rule was uh, formalised in the Parliament of Australia. And at that time, of course, uh, Parliament was only blokes because uh, Enid Lyons, who was the first woman elected to that stately place, was still... 22 years away at that point. She was still in Tasmania, uh, halfway through her spectacular maternal innings of 12 live births. <sighs> Section 49.2 of the Public Service Act was squired through the Parliament by Attorney General Littleton Groom, who was a Nationalist MP for the seat of Darling Downs. And in the best sequence of the debate, 
He's cross-examined on this section by a guy called Austin Chapman, who's also a member of the Nationalist Party, and he was a member for Eden Monero. He was quite an independent type. He um, made a big name for himself by uh, lobbying strongly for the location of the new parliament in Canberra. He also, in his spare time, uh, designed a lightweight wheat bag called the Chapman Sack. <laughs> uh, he also only had one arm. Anyway, I digress. Uh, so this exchange, a bit of which I'm going to read to you, um, is remarkable for several reasons, but not least because of the sheer exoticism of seeing a minister being challenged lucidly and publicly by a member of his own political party, not something that you would ever see today. So here we go, Mr Chapman. Why should a female officer be deemed to have retired from the service upon her marriage? Attorney General, because it would be difficult for a woman to attend to her household as well as her departmental duties. There would be a conflict of duty. This clause is in accordance with the practice of all public servants. Mr Chapman, yeah, but is there any reason we should perpetuate such an anomaly? Why should we not depart from some of these musty old precedents? I know of a lady in the public service who wants to get married, but it's told that if she does so, she must retire. She has a splendid record, she's done good work in the service, and doesn't wish to leave it. It's not fair that she should be called upon her marriage to retire. Another member. Is it not in the public interest that a female officer on her marriage should retire from the service? Mr Chapman, why? Because if she remained in the service, she would have to neglect her home duties. Chapman. If the government is charged with the responsibility of seeing that every woman attends to her home duties, that's another matter. Women in the service are paid to attend, not to home, but to their public duties. What would the single members of this committee say, say if a bill were introduced providing that on their marriage they should automatically cease to be members of this parliament? In this clause, the government are, really, are merely seeking to perpetuate a silly tradition. I love that guy. <laughs> he became postmaster general or something for a bit and then sickened and died very sadly. And uh, after I read that passage, I thought, I'm going to go find where he's buried and put some flowers on his grave, the <laughs> dear old fella. The marriage bar was passed over the objections of Mr Chapman, very sadly, um, and persisted for another 44 years. The US and Canada had similar clauses, and they repealed the, those um, much earlier, as did the UK, repealed theirs in 1946, but still Australian wives through the 40s, 50s and most of the 60s were obliged to choose between work in the public service and marriage. Most women copped it sweet and left without a fuss, but for some, the laws represented a challenge to their personal ingenuity. The Equal Opportunity for Women Association in the mid-60s collected stories from women all around Australia demonstrating the hardship and the idiocy occasioned by the law, not least of which was that it encouraged women to live in sin. My name is Rita Gray, began one of these fabulous letters. I was employed as a physicist by the State Public Service in Western Australia. When I met the man of whom I became very fond, I realised that by marrying him, I'd have to give up my career. I knew if I did this, I'd be absolutely frustrated and was realistically enough to predict that our marriage would suffer as a result. So I decided to live in sin as an alternative. I did this quite openly and continued to work in the public service for eight years. During this time, I reared three children and the public service officials were cooperative in enabling me to take my annual leave to correspond with confinement periods. <laughs> Yet when, for the sake of the children, I decided to marry their father, I was asked to resign. <laughs> One of the officials pointed out that it wasn't morally desirable for a married woman to work. <laughs> In 
The marriage bar was repealed in 1966. My mother-in-law, a South Australian teacher, still remembers the requirement on her marriage that she quit and reapply for her job, losing all of her entitlements. That's what they did with teachers. They didn't make them resign outright because no lady teachers, no teachers. So they made them quit when they got married and reapplied for their jobs, losing all of their seniority, entitlements, leave, you name it. Lovely. I wonder why she put up with it. I wonder why we put up with it, is what she says now, 50 years ago. Wives back then were a particular kind of national resource. They were no threat to men in an employment sense. In fact, as established, they were legislatively prevented from being anything of the kind. Rather, they improved men's ability to work by supplying a stable home environment, various broadly understood comforts, and adorable children, of course, whose very existence would in turn contribute a powerful evolutionary impetus to work hard and prosper. The act of getting hitched made men into more valuable employees and gave them a stronger moral position from which to ask for more promotions or more job security. And the phrase family man still evokes a whole series of reassuring impressions concerning a potential employee's home life. Something about the phrase connotes solidity, dependability, a home life filled with nourishing meals and games of Scrabble. Possibly a Labrador. (laughs) Being married as a man meant you were contributing to the stability of the nation and could probably be depended upon to continue doing so, starting with your job. Getting married as a woman, though, still has exactly the opposite effect. The very same factor, the acquisition of a home and possibly children, uh, was not expected to make women more reliable at work. It was thought to make them unreliable at work. Worse than that, a woman who sought to work after her marriage was continued to be a destabilising influence, both at home, where husband, children and Labrador would grow thin and resentful on a diet of cold-baked beans, and at work. When she, where she thoughtlessly weakened the fabric of the nation by occupying a job that should have been a man's, thereby occasioning two households to go hungry rather than just one. <laughs> now, obviously, women are no longer compelled to quit their jobs upon getting mar- married. The marriage rate is lower anyway, so it would be a less effective piece of policy. And nobody publicly prosecutes anymore the, the, the idea that a woman with a family should not work. The marriage ban has that gently ridiculous feel of ancient history. Imagine easing off your wedding ring to go to work. It sounds like it's a memory that ranks with men writing to factories on penny farthings. But even when it seems ancient or ridiculous, history shapes us and it leaves its unmistakable crenellations upon our modern lives. Women are not now routinely fired as a result of getting married. We can fire the father away with not allowed to vote and getting burned as a witch uh, as one of those (laughs) funny old things that doesn't happen anymore. But... That is not to say that marriage and childbirth don't, in the workplace, still do very different things for men compared with what they do to women. Marriage for men still means being paid more money. The phenomenon known as the marriage premium is recorded in many countries. In Australia, married men earn, on average, about 15% more than unmarried ones. NATSEM, the National Centre for Social and Economic Modelling, bless their dear cotton socks, I don't know what I would do without them, um, recently assembled a projection of the average male and female earning expectations over the course of an average career, depending on whether they do or don't have children. It's a stunning uh, analysis. For a 26-year-old male, they found, embarking today upon a 40-year career in an average job, 
the expectation is that he will earn $2 million over the course of that career. If he has children, that goes up to $2.5 million. For a 26-year-old woman, things are different. She can expect to earn, in that 40-year career, in an average job, a total of $1.9 million. If she has children, it goes down to one3 So while having a family means more money for men, it means less money for women. It's fascinating. The same biological event exerts different forces on the careers of men and women. Being a parent makes men more employable. Dads are thought to be more reliable, more competent, more committed, more suitable for promotion than non-dads. Not just me saying that. I've got a favourite piece of research um, which uh, was conducted in... 2007 at Stanford. Uh, Researchers called in a bunch of undergraduate participants and told them that their assistance was uh, being sought by a California startup communications company looking for a marketing officer to set up a new East Coast office. Because the business was youth-oriented, the story went, the company was looking for input from young people. In other words, the participants weren't told that this was a gender experiment they actually believed they were actually helping to make a recruitment decision. The researchers um, had to include when they uh, planned the experiment a long justification of, of why deception was necessary, <laughs> an explanation I skimmed through because I love this sort of stuff so very much and have no problem at all with deception in experiments. <laughs> I, um, in fact, I, to be honest, my favourites are the ones that are based on a tissue of lies. Anyway... Uh, <laughs> Each participant was told that their successful candidate's salary range would be between 135000 and 180000 Each participant was given two candidates to consider, either two women or two men. In each case, the candidates had qualifications that had proven functionally identical in a pre-testing round, but one was a parent and one wasn't, a fact that was made uh, clear by the inclusion in one CV of, the refer- of a reference to the candidate being a parent-teacher association coordinator. The other one was a volunteer in the local gardening club or something. So, what happened? When two women were up against each other, one clearly a parent and one from whose CV it could readily be inferred that she was childless, the mother lost out on just about every factor. She was considered slightly less competent. She was considered significantly less committed. She was considered suitable for hiring 47% of the time, while her childless competitor was recommended for hire 84% of the time. Her recommended starting salary averaged 137000 compared to 148000 for the non-mother, and she was thought to be potential management material by 69% of respondents compared to 84% who fancied the long-term chances of her arrival. But when the two candidates were a father and a non-father, participants in the experiment had entirely different responses. The father candidate was considered slightly more competent than the non-father. He was anticipated to be significantly more committed to the the work. His recommended starting salary uh, averaged out at 150, more than either of the female candidates and much more than the childless bloke whose qualifications were otherwise functionally identical. And as for his prospects... Dad was thought to be management material by a thumping 93.6% of respondents. His non-dad competitor was thought appropriate for advancement by 85%, more than either of the women. So, having a child made a woman less likely to be employed and less likely to be trusted, promoted and generally thought suitable. But for fathers, having a family actually gave them a competitive edge the very same reservations that were aroused by the discrete existence of children in a woman's CV, potential lack of commitment, 
unworthiness for promotion and so on were actively abolished by the existence of children in a man's CV. How can the very same factor cause such differing effects in men and women? Well, the answer is when the starting assumptions are different. And the starting assumptions about how women and men will behave, even in a regulated environment like the Australian workplace, continue to be very different. The expectation that a man, when he becomes a father, will have all the stability and explosion of love and incentive to work hard and provide, while not actually having to change the way he works, is hardwired into our assessments. And to be brutally honest, it is a fair assumption. Men do not change their work patterns very much at all when they have their first child. In fact, if anything, they increase their work hours by an average of four and a half hours a week, according to a 2012 study by Edith Gray. Four and a half hours more. I know, right? Oh, gosh. Um, women are much more likely to work part-time after having a child. Uh, of employed mothers of young children, 43% work part-time, but only 5% of corresponding fathers do. While I was writing this book, I read such a stunning PhD thesis on leadership by a University of Queensland researcher called Terence Fitzsimmons. He did something unusual. He interviewed 30 male and 30 female CEOs for his thesis, and he asked them not just the usual questions that business leaders get asked, like, what's your leadership philosophy? And um, how important is it to have a mentor? He also asked the stuff that doesn't get asked, like, how do you manage things at your place? And the results were absolutely striking to me. Of the 30 men, uh, all but two had children, and all of them had stay-at-home wives. Of the women, only two-thirds had children, but every single one of them identified herself as the primary caregiver. And this floored me because it, it reflected the patterns I see around me in my workplace and in the political workplace that I monitor from time to time. And yet, to see those statistics so boldly still shocked me, although I don't know why they would. To be honest, Although I was very interested in this subject, I found it really hard to locate any broader figures at all on how many working men and women comparatively had stay-at-home spouses. I became slightly obsessed with this, I must say. Uh, I was determined to find out the comparative rate of wife-having between men and women in this country. And I, I should explain that by wife, I mean a spouse that works either part-time or not at all in the paid workforce. Um, because of all the women that I've heard shrieking to each other, you know, while attempting simultaneously to finish some work task at the same time as making a Batman costume out of old tights and a JB Hi-Fi bag, <laughs> you hear those people going, I need a wife! God, oh, I need a wife! <laughs> We've all heard it, right? I've yelled at myself. It was extremely difficult to find any sort of stats on who actually gets wives in this country and at what rate, although, you know, I had my suspicions. In the end, I made friends with this excellent researcher at the Australian Institute of Family Studies called Jennifer Baxter, and she combed through the 2011 census with her special data comb. It took her about four seconds. I'd been trying to work it out with, you know, looking at the census, you know, my terrible mathematics. and could find lots of stuff about, you know, which men worked part-time and full-time or not at all and which women worked part-time and full-time and not at all and how many kids they all had. But I couldn't find out who was married to whom, which to me seems like a big deal, right? 
which of these people are dating which of those people? That's what I want to know. I couldn't. But she found it out because she's awesome. And here's what she told me. Of full-time working fathers... She thought it was weird, too, by the way, that those figures weren't out there. I mean, like, I'm a journalist, so what I do is I usually go around and look for academic work that someone else has done, and then I pass it off as my own. Like, that's how it (laughs) worked. But I couldn't find anyone that had done this, which seemed weird to me, because it seemed like a massive issue to me. Anyway, of full-time working fathers in this country, 76% have a spouse who either does not work in the paid workforce at all or who works part-time, thus reserving some flexibility to do school pickups, go to working bees, you know, take soup round to Nana when she's sick or be at home when the Telstra technician calls between the hours of 7am and 9pm, you know. Uh, and full-time working mothers... And there are far fewer of them, by the way, than there are full-time working fathers in Australia because in Australia they tend to work more part-time, which is a special thing in Australia that we do more than anywhere else. Only 15% of those full-time working mothers have a spouse who works part-time or not at all in the paid workforce. 75, 15, 76, 15. To me, this seems like a gargantuan structural factor in the disparity between men's experience of the workplace and women's. If you do have a family, then your ability to stay late, travel at will, attend after-hours networking events or generally be a gold star employee would depend very much on whether you are a mummy or a daddy. Men get wives and women tend not to. And having someone at home, someone who like, knows who likes what in the lunchbox or whether it's Mufti Day or, you know, where the birthday party is at the weekend and whether it's fancy dress and the fact that so-and-so's coming around for dinner on Saturday or there's dry cleaning to be collected, you know, that's not just a nice thing to have, that person. It's not just a convenient thing. It's a solid gold economic power pellet of an advantage. It's the difference between getting by and soaring. And I'm not sure that we talk about that enough. Now, the last 50 years have been all about women changing, changing our lives, moving into the paid workforce, moving out of it when we need to, fitting the bits of our lives together as best we can. You know, once women were a novelty in the workplace or politely asked to leave it when they got married, but now women juggling work and family are so normal that they are boring. Let me tell you the story of the average Australian. Uh, this is heavily influenced by my love affair with the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The, Australia, the average Australian is the proton pellet of information excreted by the nation's premier statisticians after digesting the lives, habits, family structures, religious beliefs, incomes, education and circumstances of the Australian people every time they're counted on census night. The ABS, and I love the way they do this, they take the commonest gender the commonest occupation, the commonest household type, the commonest dwelling type, commonest number of children and so on, to put together this freaky kind of identikit image of the least remarkable person in Australia. (laughs) Now, the average Australian changes every census as we change. As the population grows and diversifies and in other ways evolves into a thing that we could not have imagined a generation earlier. So in 1911, for example, the average Australian was a 24-year-old Anglican farmer. (laughs) By 1961, he was a 29-year-old clerk. According to the latest census, the average Australian these days is a 37-year-old woman. 
She was born in Australia of Australian parents and has Anglo-Celtic ancestry. When, when she is at home with her husband and her two children, a boy and a girl, aged nine and six, the detail is so good. Uh, when she's at home, the average Australian speaks only English. The house she lives in is located in a suburb of a capital city. It has three bedrooms and the mortgage on which the average Australian and her husband uh, exist um, costs them $1,800 a month. They have lived in that house for more than five years and every day the average Australian drives in one of the family's two cars to her job as a sales assistant a job in which she works 32 hours a week. She has a certificate in business and management, but the average Australian finds the flexible work hours in retail suit her better because she needs to juggle things with the kids. In other words, a woman juggling work and family and doing a job that is slightly different from what she's qualified for, okay, completely different from what she's qualified for, because it's the only way she can make everything fit without losing her actual mind, is not an exception or a novelty or a modern marvel anymore. She is actually the commonest type of person in Australia now. The best thing though about averages is not what they is not that they don't represent everyone. We all, you know, intuitively understand that, right? The fascinating thing is that according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, they don't actually represent anyone. Um, The kicker on this average Australian thing that they published, which just made me howl with laughter and made me love them even more, uh, read thus. While many people will share a number of characteristics in common with this average Australian, out of the nearly 20 million people counted in Australia on census night, no single person met all these criteria. (laughs) I love them so much. (laughs) Statistics, eh? So useful, so fascinating, and yet so full of holes. Statistics give us the degree of likelihood that something will happen to us, the evanescent predictive shape to our human endeavours. But the holes are our audacious expressions of hope. Our teensy-weensy human yelp of exceptionalism. Our faith in our own autonomy. Our originality. Our capacity to be the pack-a-day smoker who doesn't get cancer. (laughs) Or to back the long-hods horse who comes home in a canter. Right up close, we all look different. We all have a chance of bucking the system. To ourselves, we all look unique. It's only when viewed from space or from the ABS that the patterns become (laughs) dully apparent. So when we consider how things go down in the average home and what happens when human organisms shack up together, we must thus remember, first of all, that to individuals and the people they love, there is no such thing as average. The averageness is only apparent in hindsight or in longsight or when a million or 20 million such individuals are fed into these vast peristaltic information-munching machines and the results pooped out in a tidy string of statistical luncheon meat. (laughs) But the broad pattern across Australian households is that while women have surged into the workforce over the past half century, there really hasn't been a corresponding shift the other way from men. Women do just under twice as much housework as men in Australia. Women do a bit less housework when they also work full-time at a paid job. Uh, And a bit less... Sorry, when when they work part-time, they do a bit less. When they work full-time in a paid job, they do a bit less again. In a family with children under 15, the mum will do 65 hours a week of housework and childcare if she's not in paid work, 52 hours if she's in part-time work, and 41 hours if she works full-time. The 
funny thing is that in those households, the husband will do about 20 hours a week regardless of what his wife is doing. This is a crazy little pattern in Australian men, by the way. They do, on average, no matter who they are, between 15 and 20 hours of housework a week. This includes stuff like housework, yard work, childminding, driving, shopping, bill paying and so on. If you're sitting there going... <laughs> Broad definitions, ladies and jelly, jelly spoons. Uh, this... But they... they they do these hours regardless of whether they work full-time, part-time or not at all. Or if their wives work full-time. Or if they are, uh, their wives work part-time or not at all. Or if they stay at home mums or whatever. Like, seriously, it's like Australian men signed up to a national award without us knowing <laughs> or something. It is totally fascinating. This is the story of men in Australia. It is, I hope, an incomplete one, and I should acknowledge that just like our imperfect average Australian, this national stereotypes uh, has so many exceptions, and I know because I live one with one of them, thank you, darling. But on the broadest possible view, the big story is that men don't change the way they work when they have families. They don't change the amount of housework they do over the course of their lives much at all, except to do a bit more when they move out of their parents' home and a bit less when they get married, and a bit more again if they get divorced. <laughs> if you chart the average man's engagement with the workforce, it slopes sort of up from, full time, uh, from not at all to part-time to full-time when he's young, and then it pretty much goes putter, 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 putter until he retires or dies. The only reliable factor that will dent the average male's working pattern in Australia is recession. It used to be war and recession. Now it's just recession. Being made redundant is the life change that will affect a man's interaction with the workforce above all other. But the corresponding chart for women is totally different. Again, she moves into the workforce uh, when she's young, but you can spot from space where the children happen because this engagement with the workforce goes, goes down to a hammock. Sometimes it comes up again, sometimes it doesn't. And this is because a man's experience is insulated, on average, by having a wife, someone who shoulders more of the responsibility for looking after things at home than he does, regardless of what else she happens to be doing. Okay, so how do we respond to all of this? Because, you know, for the last 50 years as feminists, we've been campaigning for the elimination of barriers to women's equal rights and progress, finding things that can stop them taking their place at work and eliminating them where we can through equal pay legislation, which is... Still working on that. Uh, to outlawing sexual harassment, to improving women's degree of control over their own bodies. And no one can argue, obviously, that that work is finished. But I think we now need to look very seriously at men. And I don't mean in a sort of look at me while I'm yelling at you sort of way. I mean that we need to start looking at why men are not changing and wondering whether it's possible just possible that our assumptions and prejudices about what men should be are just as predictive of their current behaviour as the expectations and assumptions about us were 50 years ago when getting married actually meant quitting your job. Because the hard truth of these things is that it is still unusual for men to be primary caregivers, no matter how many people watch and enjoy house husbands. Based on the last census, if you took 100 average Australian nuclear families with children... 60 of them would have a dad who works full-time and a mum who does not. How many would have a full-time mum 
and a dad who works part-time in the home? Three. And how many would have the whole stay-at-home house husband thing going on? Just one. One. So I'm going to finish um, because I don't want to yabber for this entire hour. We're going to do some questions. But just telling you offhand some of the barriers for men that help, help keep this whole situation in place. We pitch flexible work schemes to women, not men. We are surprised when men turn up at mother's group. We still call them mother's groups. (laughs) We don't ask male CEOs, but how on earth do you do it? When we find that he has children and a big job the way we instantly do with female leaders. We still publish things like the mere male column in New Idea, which makes it plain that a man who can't boil an egg is not only forgivable, but hilarious. We don't even have a term for working father, although we talk about working mothers the whole time. We worry about Tanya Plibersek and how she feels about being away from her three kids in Canberra all the time, but we don't ever worry about Joe Hockey being away from his three, even though they're the same age and they miss their dad as much as Tanya kids miss their mum. You would never hear, women make lousy lawyers, openly said in a workplace situation because there are laws against that sort of thing, but have a listen at any school gate and count how many times you hear women chuckling openly about how they'd never trust their husband with the school lunch or the white's wash. Our culture doesn't just allow fathers to be hopeless, it expects them to be, it encourages them to be, and it is perpetually surprised when they aren't. And until we fix that for men, I don't see how we can possibly finish fixing things for women. Thank you. I couldn't speak a little sign. <laughs> it was only about signing books. Um, I don't think I've heard statistics spoken about with such adoration and disgust. <laughs> Do you know you use the word poop and excrete? Well, I know. For numbers, that's when a mother of three hits the ABS. <laughs> um, it's time for questions now. So if you want to come down to the microphone um, on either side. We've just got two, haven't we? Um, and just, I'll, I'll just ask very quickly while we're waiting for people to come down, which is, um, what, how has the response to it, because there's been such a, such a strong response to this research and the questions that you ask, how has that shaped your views and what have you taken from it? Well, I, I guess, look, it's been a great response. I, um, I kept thinking as I was writing this book, this is so obvious, this is so obvious, this is interesting, I don't know, it seems really obvious, but then I think... Sometimes the power of obvious things can be quite phenomenal. Like one of the funny things that I really started to think about while writing it was just how oblivious we can be sometimes to the assumptions we make about ourselves and others and we don't question them because nobody else is questioning them. And I would often think in my workplace I'd look at the women kind of racing around to get out the door and, you know, and I'd sort of occasionally ask myself, well, you know, I work in the newspaper industry. Why are all the guys editors and they all seem to have young children and hardly any women that I know are newspaper editors? And the truth is that, you know, um, newspapers go to bed at the same time as children. It's very hard to uh, attend to them both at the same time. And that's the way it sort of pans out again and again. I think that these sort of vast overarching patterns are fascinating and it's worth spelling them out, right? Um, So 
the, the response that I was most interested in actually was what men would think of it because I do think, and, and the book is really all about how um, this is a, a sort of absent part of the discussion mm. is like what men's experiences are at work and the fact that we've been so busy worrying about women getting into the workplace that we haven't spent all that much time thinking about how hard it is for men to get out of it, you know. It's the exit doors that are a problem as well as the entry doors. Um, and I'll tell you a funny story about um, the best response by far I've got from a guy. Um, actually, there are two. I got this fantastic letter on Thursday from a guy who said... Uh, he thinks I'm an idiot and so on. But um, uh, he said... Um, Dear Ms. Crabb, I had the opportunity to browse through your book when I was passing through Canberra Airport recently, and I read a column of yours recently that led me to uh, confirm that I had not misjudged the argument of your book. And I'm like, awesome. He then gave me two pages on why I was an idiot. I thought, hasn't even read it, but (laughs) I would love that kind of confidence. (laughs) I mean, I just wrote it and sat there going, oh, my God, I have no credibility on this stuff. Will anyone believe it? But this guy's like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I don't even need to read it. Um, I want to be like that. Yes. I want a national day of shamelessness to be right. declared for women. Like, Unevidenced like, opinions. You are my pin-up, fella. Yeah. You know, anyway, I'm digressing wildly yes. already. The best one, though, I, I included something in the book and then I took it out because it was so gross and then I put it back in because I thought, you know, part of the problem here is I often cover up, you know, the stupid things this that we're This is the jelly. Right, the jelly. <laughs> so when I had my third baby, who's now two, she's adorable, um, she was kind of a tricky baby, and we started filming Kitchen Cabinet when she was about 12 weeks old. And um, <laughs> so she came everywhere, but she didn't like going in cars. She just really hated cars. So we had to sort of select guests for the show on the basis of whether we could get there by train. And then she also didn't do bottles, you know. No. And so... She had to be with me all the time. After a while, we discovered that she would take solid food off a spoon, you know, and then we had this epiphany about the fact that breast milk can be jellied. You can do it. So she was off the spoon. Anyway, I put that in the book. And that sounds uh, gross, but that's a completely genius idea. I know. Actually, no, I know. it really is. Yeah. I had exactly the same problem. But my I friends are already nervous about gelatin. my fridge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, right. but yes. I got this great um, Twitter message from a guy whose um, name on Twitter was something like at Manly Man or something. And um, <laughs> he messaged me just before Christmas. He said, right, uh, so, um, <clears throat> yeah, my wife's going back to work. Uh, baby won't take a bottle. What's the, uh, what's the deal with this jelly? <laughs> <laughs> and... I had this fantastic back and forth with at Manly Man about how to jelly his wife's breast milk. And I thought, good on you, buddy, because right. he's just... Where can I be helpful? Here. I want to take the, over the whole engineering of how to make yeah. your breast milk into a solid. You know? <laughs> anyway, I didn't hear from him for a while. And then I, you know, after a week or two, I'm like, how'd it go? And he said, oh, you know, baby still hates the bottle. Loves the jelly. <laughs> like, that made the whole thing worthwhile. Anyway. That's really brilliant. Yeah. You actually do need to put that somewhere. I know. I hope you've yeah. posted your recipe for that somewhere. Okay. <laughs> but do we do need to go to questions? Hello, yes? Uh, thank you very much. Um, sorry, I have a bit of an accent. I'm French of origin. I've lived here for a long time. And I think what is very interesting when you come from somewhere else is you sort of compare what there yeah. is. And, the French are very poor uh, children, but have very good uh, policy for that, and especially for women at work. There are two things which strikes me in Australia. The first one is, why is there an issue to have tax deduction to hire people? I mean, finally, we may got to the idea of the nanny, thanks God, because the nanny is necessary 
for women who don't have 9.30 to 4.30 type of work arrangement. And that would be every woman into a management type of role. So I'd like to know why life has to be so hard and we don't want to hire not only the nanny, but the cleaners. We'll and give that a title for the next session. Why is life so hard? Yeah. Well, look, you, you raise a really interesting point, actually, because one of the really um, fascinating differences between um, women's experience in Australia and the United States, for instance, is that um, Australia has, this, as I mentioned, this whackingly high rate of part-time work and it's almost all done by women. Um, there's much um, less part-time work in the US. Um, but the other difference in the US is that you have a lot more outsourcing of domestic labour, and that is because there is an underpaid underclass in the US that gets trucked in to do all this stuff. So I'm a bit kind of mm. torn on this, because I, I think, know. you know, <laughs> great, you know, outsourcing this stuff, but then like, oh, OK, well, it's a, you know, it's just other women that are picking it up, you know, at the, at the end of the day. And if you have a look at, you know, the executive experience in Asia, for instance, um, they don't have anywhere near like the same um, gender disparity issues because there is a much greater culture of outsourcing domestic work, right? Whereas in Australia, we're really strict still about the things that it's okay to outsource and the things that it's not okay to outsource. And, you know, childcare is still one of them. Um, we, we, we're over um, getting someone else to mow your lawn. That's, that's okay? Like, the yep. gym's mowing? All right. But it's very complicated still for women culturally, you know, this idea of letting go of that work. And you find that um, when um, mothers go into the workforce, they will give up housekeeping stuff, um, although... Um, not all that much, but the, the childcare is the stuff that they hold on to, the time with their children. There's this terrifying stat from the um, US, and I um, couldn't find a corresponding one in Australia just because our um, sort of diary um, records don't go back that far recording, you know, the amount of time women and men spend with their children and so on. But um, a, a full-time working mother in the US today spends more hours per week actively interacting with her child in play and learning than her mother did with her, even though her mother didn't work in the paid workforce at all. So we've got to keep in mind always that the expectations change as well. It's not just division of labour. Mm, thank you. OK. Hi, Annabelle. Um, my household is part of the 3%, so that statistic really stuck with me. Yeah. God, no wonder I feel so weird most of the time. But, um, right. Mm -hmm. But I have to say the one thing that we don't talk a lot about is the men in those 3% families. It can be very lonely for them, very emasculating, and I think until we start addressing that, we're not going to see that figure rise. Oh, I agree. I really do. And I think that it's often a subconscious thing. Um, and... You see, if you're, you know, if you see a guy who's always at school drop off and pick up, which is, you know, still pretty female-dominated kind of place to hang out, you know, you see him and you say, oh, hey, what are you doing here? And, you know, it doesn't seem that big of a deal to you, but that guy's you're the 20th person who said, oh, aren't you amazing? Or, you know, are you sure you're managing, you know? <laughs> I talked to a bunch of um, dads who are primary carers when I was writing the book and... You know, some of the stories are hilarious, you know, the, the things that people will say to them that they wouldn't say to a woman. Um, assumptions about their competence or what they're doing there. Oh, you've lost your job, have you? That sort of thing. Um, there are things that 
people, women and men, will say to guys who are the primary caregiver that they would never say to the woman. Just like there are things that people say to work, um, at work to women who have children that they would never say to a man who has children, like, where are the children today? You know, who's looking after them? And I always recommend that your response to that should be, oh, Jesus, I can't, oh, my God. <laughs> or, you know, how do you do it? To which, you know, I think Jedi mind control is a good response. But, you know, I've actually had a reversal of my thinking on this whole thing. Like, I used to read newspaper interviews with female CEOs and get really pissed off that sometimes, you know, right at the top there'd be the question, how do you... You must be a super mum because you've got children and you've got this big job and everything. How does that work? <laughs> and yet no guy gets asked that. Um, and I used to think... Stop asking this woman that question. Like, stop asking these women how they manage all their lives, you know? Because you don't ask the men. I think the answer is not to stop asking the women, it's to start asking the guys, right? There was this fantastic guy who was a... Oh, sorry, I can't remember his name right now. I mentioned him in a column a few, week, a few months ago. He was the um, CEO of this sort of startup IT company, massively successful in the States. And he wrote... He quit, right? And he, we gave himself another job in the organisation, but he stopped, stepped down from the top job. And he wrote the most plaintive little blog post. And it was... Effectively, he just said... I see women CEOs being asked all the time, you know, how do you juggle it? And no one ever asks me that. And the answer is it's really hard and upsetting. <laughs> I've, been asked, I've been asked what my favourite car is and what my favourite colour is, but no one has ever asked me that and it's the biggest issue in my life and that is why I'm stepping down. It's a great blog post and it made me think, right, I'm asking. From now on. We've got only two minutes left. I'm sorry, I'm afraid, I've been but I'll tell you on. what, Annabelle, I'll give you a, a, an opportunity to answer a question in 40 seconds. Go, and that will be our last one. Hi, Annabelle. Thanks. I think um, that's amazing, and a lot of what you say is so true. Um, just a quick question. You sort of imply that one of the spouses, either the wife or the husband, has to work part time. But could this work? You know, um, could the husband be considered the primary caregiver, even if both? you know, awake full time. Like, how, yeah, can change, how can we change that? It's, it's, I mean, my partner and I both work full time and we've got three kids and, you know, it's kind of crazy and, you know, we're fortunate in that we can afford to get help where we need it and I work pretty flexibly, right, because I've got a job where I write so um, I often, you know, can make it to school pick up and then I go back to work after they've gone to bed or, you know, like, you use every second of the day. So, no, I don't suggest that at all. Um, but I think every... Um, Every household uses devices to kind of make things work when they need to. Um, my point is just that you cannot do it all without losing your brain if only one person is taking, you know, responsibility for all that extra stuff, you know. That's the stuff that has to be shared. And the only way that you can make that work in a broader sense is to start offering men the same opportunities for flexibility and the same presumption that they will exercise the choice to do flexible work or change the way they work to reflect what else is going on in their lives that women do. There we go. Um, thank you so much, Annabelle. Wait, are you signing afterwards? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Annabelle's signing books afterwards. Everyone, thanks and let's thank the fabulous thank Annabelle Crabb.